0: You're listening to Legion, the podcast about the devil and all his works. From obsessions to possessions, from hexes to hauntings, if it's demonic, I'm on it. I'm Susan Vigilante. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, here's a question for you. How many metalheads does it take to screw in a light bulb? Give up? None. Metalheads embrace the darkness. <laughs> yeah, but uh, um bum Yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll see myself out. Seriously, if there's one kind of music that is guaranteed to stir up controversy, I do think that has to be heavy metal. I'm going to use metal as an umbrella term here, okay? I know there are lots of different kinds of metal, but metal is short and I can't remember all the different kinds anyway metal's loud, it's kind of grating, and its lyrics deal with some pretty spine-chilling issues. They sing about murder. They sing about rape. There are songs about cannibalism. Lots of very, very disturbing stuff. But you want to hear something amazing? A study in around, I think it was around the year 2000, claimed or concluded, that heavy metal is the preferred music of geniuses. Think about that for a second. Einstein might have been a metalhead. On the other hand, Beavis and Butthead are metalheads. So genius or not-so-genius, biggest fans, uh, I'm not going to take a stand there. I'm going to let everybody decide for themselves. Now, somewhere between Einstein and Beavis and Butthead, there are a lot of young, impressionable, not fully developed in the frontal lobe area, young kids, mostly males, who are really into heavy metal music. And every so often, one of them gets the idea that he's not listening to lyrics, that he's listening to real instructions. That's the kind of story I'm going to be talking about here tonight. This story took place in Central California in the year 1995. It's kind of hard to hear. So if there are any kids listening, you might want to get them their own headphones and have them listen to, I don't know, Rafi or the Monkees or something instead. The town was called Arroyo Grande, California. If you look up Arroyo Grande in uh, reviews online about kinds of towns to live in, the reviews are glowing. They say it's a lovely, charming, small town, that it's close to the beaches, it has a beautiful clear water lake, that the schools are wonderful, and that it's just the right size. People tend to know a lot of their neighbors, but it's not quite so small that everybody knows each other's business. It sounds like a beautiful place to live. The only complaint that comes up in a number of these reviews is that, you know, it's there's just not that much to do. Things can get pretty boring. There there just isn't that much to do. Well, if you ask me, it sounds like a wonderful place to raise young children. But as a place for teenagers, I don't know. You mix teenagers and boredom and things like available drugs, and you could have a very serious potential problem on your hands. Now, for kids at the high school, problem usually meant things like, you know, underage drinking, Uh, drug use, I don't know, getting pulled over for speeding on the highway. But for three boys in that town, trouble was going to mean something much, much worse. Trouble Was going to turn out to mean a satanic murder. The victim was a young girl named Elise Poller. Elise was 15 years old at the time, and she was every mother's dream. Uh, She was blonde. She was pretty. She was five foot seven. She was tall. She sang in her church choir. She made some of her own clothes. Uh, She was really active in sports. She was the oldest of four kids. And in general, she was a very responsible girl. And she was one of those girls everybody liked. Now, her parents knew she wasn't perfect. After her freshman year in high school especially, she started doing things like sneaking out at night after curfew, uh, getting caught with alcohol, coming home smelling like weed. Her parents thought, she's basically a very good girl. Maybe this is all a phase. We're not going to get our guts in a knot about it, but we are going to be a little more watchful. One evening in July 1995, Elise was watching a movie with her family. According to one website I saw, it said the movie was Paint Your Wagon. Uh, (laughs) You'd have to be very dedicated to your family to sit through a screening of Paint Your Wagon with your family. Uh, It was a terrific stage musical, but an absolute disaster of a film. So she's watching the movie and the phone rings. And she got up to answer the phone. She went into the kitchen. She came back a couple minutes later and told her parents that all of a sudden she was really too tired to stay up anymore and that she was going to go to bed. So she went upstairs to her bedroom. Later on, much later on, her father would tell investigators that he knew something was wrong that night, that he could just tell something was not quite right with his daughter. And he wished, he wished a thousand times he had confronted her, but he didn't. He let her go upstairs and shut the door to her room. Once she shut the door, Elise pulled, up, pulled back the blankets and then she took her pillows and she arranged them in a line to make kind of a body shape. Then she covered them with the blankets again, opened the window and slipped outside. Elise never came home. The next morning, her parents called the police and reported that their daughter, their oldest child, was missing. Now, at first, the police just blew them off. They said, oh, come on, 15, good-looking girl like that. She's probably run off with a boyfriend. It happens all the time. Really, she'll be back in a couple of days. They always come back. Don't worry about it. But Elise's parents were not buying it. They knew all about Elise sneaking out after curfew, They knew all about her dabbling in drugs. They'd even sent her to rehab once. They also knew she had some strange new friends. But they also knew that there was no way their daughter, who despite all her issues, deeply loved her family, would just run away. She would never hurt them like that. So they started calling around. They called her friends. They called her friends' parents. Her friends called other friends. Nobody could find Elise. Finally, the police gave in and opened an official investigation. Well, if you've watched any cop shows at all on television, you know what happened next. Hundreds and hundreds of phone calls started pouring into the police station. All of a sudden, everyone in maybe a 10-mile radius had spotted Elise somewhere. They'd seen her uh, at the grocery store. They'd seen her having coffee in a cafe. They saw her having a burger in a fast food place. They'd seen her hundreds of places. Everyone was eager to come up with a a lead that would crack the case. But none of the leads led anywhere. Weeks passed, then months. Summer came to an end. The new school year began. Elise should have been a sophomore. Meanwhile, the calls kept coming into the police station. And the pollers... Lisa's mom and dad, kept hoping for a break in the case. Still, there was nothing. When the Christmas season came around, someone played a really very cruel hoax on the Poller family. They called them at home and said, I know where your daughter is, and I know she is coming home on Christmas Day. Well, of course, on Christmas Day, the Pollers stayed home huddled around the Christmas tree, watching the front door, and of course the girl did not come home. It was the most dismal Christmas the family had ever experienced. In early March of 1996, another call came into the station. This person said, I have information about the missing girl, Elise Poller. She's dead. Well, the police by now had gotten hundreds of calls just like this. They just shook their heads, and they added it to the file with all the others. But this guy called back. He was very insistent. Over and over, the police ignored him. Finally, a few days later, on March 13, 1996, a boy named Royce Casey walked into the police station and confessed to the murder of Elise Pollard. He did more than confess, in fact he led the police to Elise's body. And he told them the full story of what had happened the night she left home. And it was much, much, much worse than anything the police could have imagined. And it all started with a heavy metal band. In the summer of 1995, Royce Casey was 17 years old. His buddy Jacob Delashmet was 16 and the youngest of the group Joseph Fiorella, was 14. Despite their age differences, though, the three boys had quite a bit in common. They all did drugs. They all loved heavy metal music. And they were all troubled teens. They'd had a lot of trouble fitting in in school, and in fact, none of their school careers worked out very well. Joseph left to be homeschooled. Jacob was expelled for drug possession. And Royce was ultimately placed in something called a continuance school, which is a school for kids who are not expected to graduate on time. The other kids at Arroyo High School all thought the three boys were weirdos. But like I said, they all were in what they had binding them together. The one thing they had in common most of all was their love of heavy metal music. Their favorite band was Slayer. Slayer was the thrash music sensation out of Huntington Park, California. Slayer was one of the big four, uh, Megadeth, Metallica, Anthrax, and Slayer. Those were the big four of heavy metal music back then. In 1995, in fact, Slayer was one of the most successful metal bands in the world. They had been performing together for 14 years at this point, and they had already sold well over 2 million albums and they would go on to sell millions more. Like a lot of metal music, Slayer's songs dealt with the violent and the macabre. Their 1995 song, Serenity in Murder, is typically disturbing. Here are some of the lyrics. Let me take you down without a sound, dead before you hit the ground. Peaceful and serene, slowly bleeding. Eyes once bright are now fading. Pallid, ashen face against my skin, staring blindly at some distant place. Another song called Postmortem, which was on their best-selling album Rain in Blood, is at least as chilling. Tighten the tourniquets around your neck, sifting away the debris of hated life. Cold touch of death begins to chill your spine. The boys had formed their own band, They called it hatred. And the boys who formed hatred wanted to be just like Slayer. They wanted to be rich, famous. They wanted to be sensational guitar players. There was one problem. Not one of them had the first idea how to go about achieving this. Finally, Joseph, the youngest member of the band, had an idea. What if they all asked Satan to help them? Now, Satan has been a fixture of metal music, you know, since its inception. Uh, in its lyrics, in its cover art, in the metal chat rooms that are all over the internet, Satan is somewhere between a muse and a god. And, you know, Slayer was no exception to the rule. Their song, Altar of Sacrifice, describes killing a virgin to appease the prince of darkness. Here we go. A uh, high priest waiting with dagger in hand spilling the pure virgin blood, Satan's slaughter. Another song called Necrophiliac also talks about filling the need for sacrifice to Satan. To varying degrees, all three of the boys were into the occult, but it was the youngest, Joseph Fiorella, who really was the standard bearer here. His interest in the occult was intense. He had a library of occult books in his room at home. He read articles about the English occultist Alistair Crowley. He studied black magic. And along with that, he listened to unlimited amounts of metal. Later, he told police, the music started to shape the way I looked at things. Despite being the youngest, Fiorella could be very convincing, and he managed to convince the others that Satan would help them put hatred on the map. But he also knew from all his studies of the occult that Satan wouldn't do that for free. If they wanted that kind of a favor from the Prince of Darkness, they were going to have to pay up. Satan would want a sacrifice first. And not just any sacrifice, a major sacrifice, a human sacrifice. In fact, Satan would demand a virgin sacrifice. Now all they needed was a victim. There was a girl at Arroyo Grande High School whom Joseph remembered well. They actually had, took the same bus to school sometimes. She was pretty, blonde, blue-eyed, and he was sure she had to be a virgin. Elise Poller, he decided, would make the perfect sacrificial lamb. Jacob Deloschmidt said later that Fiorella once asked him if he would be quote, down for sacrificing a virgin. I didn't take it seriously, Jacob said. I just said. Yeah, whatever. But he must have taken it seriously enough uh, because he acted on the plan along with Fiorella and Royce. For months, the three boys planned exactly how they would kill the girl. They even, (laughs) accidentally as it happened, had a dry run when one night they were walking out on the street and they saw her and they lured her off the road and tried to shove her down a ravine. But Elise's mother was there, and she came running, and it scared the three would-be sacrificers off. But now they were ready. On the night of July 22, 1995, one of the boys called Elise at her home and asked her she'd like to get together and do some drugs. Elise had smoked weed with the Hatred guys before. She liked them. You know, they were a little strange, but uh, that's what she liked about them. They weren't like all her other friends. They were different. They were interesting. A night with the hatred boys, you know, smoking weed and listening to music sounded like a good time to Elise. So she agreed to meet them. There was a eucalyptus grove about a mile from Elise's house, and she agreed to meet them there. Then she told her parents she was going to bed. She went upstairs, she set up the pillow, Elise, and she sneaked out. She caught up with the guys near the grove. Before she knew what was happening, Jacob had taken off his belt and slipped it over her head. He wrapped it around her neck and started pulling. As the belt tightened around her throat, Elise struggled and started screaming. The boys ignored her screams. Another boy pulled out a hunting knife and started stabbing her with it, stabbing her in the throat. Her screams grew louder. She started crying. She started begging God for help and crying out for her mother. And again, they ignored her. They took turns stabbing her. They stabbed Elise 12 times. When she finally fell to the ground, all three of them stomped on her neck as she lay in the dirt. Finally, Elise was still. The boys shoved her body into a shallow grave and left. Later, police would learn that in spite of being stabbed a dozen times, none of the knife wounds on Elise's body had been fatal. When the killers left the eucalyptus grove, Elise was still alive. They left that girl there to die a slow and agonizing death in the woods. Her body would not be found for nearly a year. All the while, The fake leads were coming into the police, and the Pollers clung to hope. On March 13th, Royce Casey walked into the station and confessed to the murder of Elise Poller. In the months since the murder, Royce Casey, who was the oldest of the three killers, had had a conversion experience. He had converted to Christianity, and the guilt at what he and the others had done to Elise was eating him up alive. He went to a priest and confessed everything. The priest persuaded him to turn himself into the cops. So he went to the police station, and he told them everything, and he led them to the body. Royce, Fiorella, and Della Schmidt were all arrested and charged with murder. Police suspected Elise had been raped as well, but by the time her mummified remains were found, they were too degraded. For authorities to tell if she had been sexually assaulted or not. They did suspect she had been assaulted because of the way the body was positioned, but they had no conclusive evidence. They also learned that one of the boys had been bragging to his buddies about returning to the eucalyptus grove and having sex with the dead body. There's one more detail that emerged from the investigation that I think is particularly chilling. When the three boys were arrested, no one in Arroyo Grande High School was surprised. In fact, a handful of students admitted that they had known all along that Elise was dead, and they were pretty sure who the murderers were. Not one of these students mentioned their suspicions to the police. They formed a conspiracy of silence, and it let that girl's body rot in the woods. In 1997, all three young men were tried for murder. All three were convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Elise's family buried their daughter in Oak Hill Cemetery in Ballard, California. There's a simple marker on the grave that reads, Elise Marie Pollard, 1980 to 1995. Return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you, and I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. In 2001, the Pollard family sued Slayer and their distributor, Sony Music. They claimed that the band's lyrics had incited the boys to murder their daughter. The suits were dismissed on First Amendment grounds. The Pollers eventually moved away from Arroyo Grande. The Delashmitt family declared bankruptcy and also moved away. But there were more repercussions to come. In December 2013, Elise's father, David Poller, was arrested and charged with misdemeanor battery and vandalism over an incident of road rage. Pollard claimed his actions sprang from PTSD over his daughter's murder. A plea deal was reached that required him to take anger management training. In 2022, Royce Casey was described as a model prisoner who had earned his GED in jail, and he was granted parole. According to the reports, he planned to become a substance abuse counselor. Joseph Fiorello and Jacob Deloschmidt remain in custody. Both Deloschmidt and Fiorella denied any formal involvement in Satanism, but they did admit that they had all played a part in the girl's death and that they had been inspired by the music of Slayer. In 2001, the Pollers sued Slayer and their distributor, Sony Music, on grounds that their music had convinced these boys to murder their daughter. The lawsuit was thrown out on First Amendment grounds. The Pollers buried their daughter in Oak Hill Cemetery in Ballard, California. A simple marker on her grave reads, Elise Marie Pollard, 1980-1995. to Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you, and I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. My sources for this episode of Legion include The San Luis Obispo Tribune, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Washington Post, the Office of the District Attorney for San Luis Obispo County, California, ever-loving Wikipedia, and Entertainment Tonight. Thanks for listening to this episode of Legion, the podcast about the devil and all his works. I hope you'll join me again next time. I'm Susan Vigilante, and remember, the devil's first trick is to convince you he doesn't exist.